The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. I want to offer a big thanks to Niels Heyman, who spoke last Sunday, and Santi Caro, who spoke the previous Sunday. While I was on retreat, I was at the new retreat property that we as a community now own, about 90 minutes out of town, really beautiful place. Some of you even came out for the open house that was right in the middle of the retreat that I was doing, um, I guess it was a week ago Saturday. We had maybe 50 community members out for that open house. We walked the land and had a meeting. We'll have another meeting on Thursday, the 12th of December, if anybody wants here in Minneapolis in this space, talking about the retreat property and getting people's input. And um, Kevin, I'm forgetting Kevin's last name, a videographer came out and was filming. So we'll have some of the rough clips from that um, recording, the video recording, available um, next Thursday, a week from Thursday on the 12th. So join us for that. I think it starts at 7 It'd be probably an hour and a half just to learn a little bit more about the property, how we might use it as a community to support our practice. So it's really exciting to have this new opportunity. We're looking for people who are interested in getting involved in all kinds of levels. So if you are, let us know. You'll probably notice the big bulletin board out in the lobby that has more information about it. And another new and exciting thing is we're beginning a new book. Um, generally, I uh, take the themes for the talks from a book. That way, people who want to do more study can read along. Don't feel like you have to, but it's a wonderful resource if you do. So we finished a book by Ajahn Chah, a wonderful Thai meditation master and Buddhist monk. Now we're st- starting a book by one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, a wonderful teacher, one of the co-founders of Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, along with Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield and a few others back in 1975. He's written a number of books um, and continues to teach at IMS, as it's usually called, Insight Meditation Society. usually just goes by the acronym IMS. And uh, leading the three-month retreat most of the year since they first started in 75. In the fall, they have a three-month retreat. A few of our community members have been out there, including Gabe Keller, some of you know, was out there this last fall. Probably the re- probably ending this Friday, the three-month retreat. So he's been out there for three months, and he's going to stay at the Forest Refuge, which is another part of the IMS campus for people who do long-term retreat practice, and he'll continue for th- five months there. So maybe someday other people here in the room will get out to that place. But we get Joseph's wonderful teachings. He, he gave a series of 46 lectures over a series of years, on the Satipatthana Sutta. This is the discourse the Buddha gave on the ways of establishing mindfulness. That's a general way to translate Satipatthana. Ways of establishing mindfulness or four foundations of mindfulness. Basically, how to be mindful of the mind and body. And whether this was an actual talk the Buddha gave or a collection of talks that were put together, um, all the talks or all the uh, ways that he talked about cultivating mindfulness of the mind and body, this is what's been collected in this particular discourse. And so, it's a very comprehensive text. 
and we'll go through it, probably take a year, and you'll see all of the teachings we need are in this text. And the Buddha was very clear about the importance, both at the beginning of this text, you know, he says, practitioners, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for their surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of all mental stress or dukkha and discontent, for the acquiring of the true method, for the realization of Nibbana. Right? Nibbana, remember, is the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind, or the unbinding of the mind, the mind unbinding itself from the activity of greed, anger, and delusion, namely the four satipatthanas, the four ways of establishing mindfulness. And right at the very end, before he died, after teaching for some 40 years or so, um, he was lying down, sick of course, and surrounded by some close lay and monastic disciples, and somebody, a new seeker appeared, somebody who hadn't met the Buddha before, appeared there. They're not, in, I don't think they were in a building, they were just, he was just under some trees. And a seeker who'd been looking for the Buddha for a while, for instruction, just appeared and asked to see the Buddha. And Ananda, the attendant of the Buddha, said, this, is, this isn't the time. You know, the Buddha's not well, he's dying. But the Buddha overheard this and said, no, no, Ananda, let him in. And so this person came and asked the Buddha his question, which was something like, you know, I've been seeking instruction from a number of people over the years. I hear a lot of things. How am I to know whether these people know what they're talking about or not? And the Buddha gave this wonderful response. He said, well, if they talk about how it is that suffering arises in the mind and how it is that suffering ceases in the mind and how it is that we can pay attention to the mind in a way, in other words, being mindful of the mind, in a way that reveals how it is that the mind gets caught up in states of suffering or stress and how it is that the mind is released from states of stress, contracted, self-centered dramas, for example, If they talk about that and have something to say about that, then they know what they're talking about. And if they don't talk about that, then they don't know what they're talking about. And this is, I mean, it it can almost seem like the Buddha is saying, well, it's either my way or the highway. Like, if they're not teaching what I'm teaching, then don't listen to them. But it's not really that way. And And I think it's important that what the Buddha is saying that unless a teacher or a spiritual system, teaching system, is somehow directing people to get to know the mind, is somehow locating the experience of stress here in the activity of the mind right now, they're missing the point. Because the whole point of the practice of mindfulness, developing this reflectiveness of mind, the whole point comes out of this deepening realization. Initially, we're going to take it on faith, like, well, it makes sense, let me check it out. But then after you check it out, we start to have confidence that the issue at hand is subjective. It's not about some idea of the objective world that's causing me problems. It's this recognition that 
the issue at hand is always our subjective experience of our life, of reality. And that's what we need to come to know. And in a way, it, uh, you know, as, as wonderful as the scientific method is, it's often based on this materialist view that I'm somehow standing outside of this sort of play of materialism, the unfolding of cause and effect out there, the world out there, and I'm going to observe it. But the Buddha understood, and we can understand that, actually we need to use the mind to know the subjective, our subjective experience as it's unfolding moment to moment. Because what gets revealed in being mindful of our subjective experience moment to moment isn't so much the objects of experience that are being known moment by moment by moment, like there's knee pain being known and there's a sound being known and now I'm knowing the mind judging or knowing the mind planning and now I'm noticing the breath coming in. It's not so much the objects that are being known as much as it is this dynamic that the object, this object, is being known. So it's this dynamic between the object which is revealing this process of knowing or being awake or being aware. We need the objects of our experience to begin to reveal to the mind the underlying nature of awareness. Because it it begins to, uh, it, the mind then begins to intuit what the refuge is. What is the escape from mental stress, basically? All the ways we experience stress, whether it's fear or loneliness or anxiety or desire to become somebody. You know, there's so many, maybe an infinite number of ways that we can experience mental stress, mental suffering. But the escape has to do with understanding the mind itself, the subjective experience. It's not enough to be the, you know, world famous psychologist that has studied everybody else's mind clinically. You could, you could be a brilliant psychologist or scientist really having done very precise, careful, double blind studies of reality and have a lot to say but you could still be a miserable person for yourself and for others, like not knowing how to get along with other people, right? We know this. I mean, we hear about these people who are incredibly brilliant but are dysfunctional as human beings, as just like knowing how to be, have a happy life, how to be a generous, kind, and relaxed human being. Because they've studied something and maybe have learned quite a bit about that something, but they haven't used their brilliance to look at the subjective experience of being a human being. And that's this unique... And that's what the Buddha said to that person there, you know, minutes or hours before he'd passed away. He said, if the, if the person, if the system isn't about studying the mind and how it is that suffering comes and how it is that suffering goes in the mind subjectively, right, because... We're interested in the subjective experience of suffering. That's what is real to us. We're not interested in it theoretically, but in the actual experience of our heart or mind getting all bound up 
and how that then can release. And to the degree we understand it, we become useful to other people, right? Because then we have something to say. If we have, I mean, there are people who find the release but may not be able to articulate the process by which that's all happened for them. And in fact, what makes, you know, the Buddha, it's actually a title for someone, you know, one of the characteristics of a Buddha, someone who gets that title, is they can articulate. It's not just that they've had a full awakening, but they can articulate that full awakening in a way that other people can use their words, the maps that they articulate, to understand their own subjective experience, to have confidence that that's relevant, and to take up the practice in a way that's skillful, so that they have the same insights that another person has had. So the technical definition of a Buddha is there's somebody who had a full awakening, deep insight, and could articulate it in a way that other people could have the same insight. But they're not Buddhas because they had the insight with the help of the Buddha's articulation. So they're just fully awake human beings. Mere fully awake human beings. So, this is our aspiration, right? To wake up, like to hear these teachings, to take them, up, to take them in, to listen, take it in, and then to, re, to sort of make the teachings our own by first just being able to comprehend them just on this intellectual or conceptual level. Okay, what is mindfulness? Okay, mindfulness is this present moment reflectiveness. And I'll talk a little bit how the Buddha articulates the path of mindfulness. So after that opening statement, you know, where he says, this is the path, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting, the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, the ending or cessation of dukkha, mental stress and discontent, for the acquiring of the true method, not the true belief, but for the acquiring of a process, a, a path, like a training. If you do this training, you will get this result. If you don't do this training, you won't get this result. That's basically what he told that person before he died. If you do this, if you study your mind in this way, you will get this result. If you don't study the mind, no matter what you do, you won't get this result because the missing link, like what keeps human beings in states of stress and suffering, is the not understanding their mind, the subjective experience of their mind. Not having gotten interested enough to sit down or to find some quiet, relatively simple situation where they're not just so distracted to study the mind. Use the mind or use the heart to study the mind and heart. And then he goes on. So what are the four ways of establishing mindfulness? Here, practitioners, in regard to this body, when he uses body, he's really talking about the five physical senses. So seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and touching. So here, in regard to the body, a practitioner abides contemplating this body, the experience of these five physical senses, ardent, clearly knowing, mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. So that's one of the four ways of establishing mindfulness. We establish mindfulness with the experience of the five physical senses. We use them as a training ground. 
But there are other ways. We could use different aspects of the mind. I mean, basically, there's just two things going on in any moment. There's the mind and there's the body. But the mind's a little bit more subtle, and uh, so the Buddha breaks it down. So, in terms of the four ways of establishing mindfulness, one way is with the five physical senses, which he calls the body. And then the other three are just different aspects of the mind. We could establish mindfulness on the experience of feeling. Now here, feeling is, has a more technical meaning. Feeling in terms of the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of whatever the mind's knowing in the moment. So the mind could be knowing a sound, or could be knowing a mind state. But when we're being mindful of feeling, we're noticing whether that mind state or that body sensation is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We're being mindful of it. Because the Buddha says, it's liberating to pay attention especially with some continuity, to the feeling tone of whatever is being experienced. You could do this. This is all you would need to do. This would be the last instruction you could you would need. You could just go home right now and all you would do for the rest of your life, as you live your life and be a person and have relationships and a job and take care of your body, you could just track whatever is going on. Just track whether the mind is interpreting that or is defining it or knowing it as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And just keep tracking that. It would reveal so much about the operation of the mind to use that establishment or that foundation, which we call feeling, to learn about the mind. So by just tracking that in a continuous way, you won't miss anything about the mind. So you could use the body and just track the sensations of, of the body or the seeing or the hearing or the s- smelling or the tasting and you'll learn about the mind. You'll learn what needs to be learned. Or you could track the experience of feeling. Or the third, which is another aspect of the mind, is this general category of just knowing the mind. Like, is the mind in this moment expansive or is it tight? Is it really light or is it heavy and entangled? You know, is it happy or is it sad? So just the different shape or textures or qualities of the mind, just knowing the general flavor of the mind. Like, you could look right now. And it's relatively easy to just, in a flash, in a moment, just check on the mind. Like, how is your mind or how is the heart right now? Is it sort of flat? Like, sometimes the heart feels a little flat or a little numb or a little dead. Like, not much life to it. Sometimes it's, you know, bubbly and restless. So we just check in. Well, how is it? Now the question is, could we sustain that interest, that recollection? Oh, this is how the mind is, or this is how the heart is. And just tracking it. That would literally profoundly change our lives if we could sustain that interest in the mind. So that's the third. And then the fourth, the Buddha suggests that we use these particular maps that he articulated to observe the mind. So not just observing the mind in a general way, like what's the general quality, predominant quality of the mind in this moment, and then tracking that, but to particular, in a particular way to take up a map, like noticing the unskillful qualities of the mind 
And so the Buddha defined that and he has a list, the five hindrances, you know. Is there greed or aversion or restlessness or dullness or doubt in the mind? Now we'll go through this over the months because this is all articulated in this, um, in this, uh, talk or this collection of the Buddhist talks on the four ways of establishing mindfulness. But just so you have a general sense, the Buddha is talking about being mindful of the body, that could be your main emphasis, being mindful of feeling, being mindful of the mind, or being mindful of the particular maps that the Buddha articulated and using that map and see the mind through that map. See what's going on in the mind through that map. Whether you're looking at the wholesome qualities or the unwholesome qualities or the Four Noble Truths, the arising and cessation of dukkha, of stress in the mind. So he, in that part of the discourse, I think there's maybe five different maps that he suggests that you practice using. Now you don't ever have to do, certainly you wouldn't do all these different practices at the same time, and you may not ever do all of them, because they're overlapping practices. Like I said, you could just do one part of the mindfulness of the body. And if you just trained in being mindful of your breath, right? don't worry about seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or other sensations, but just know the experience of the breath in more and more subtle ways. The whole world opens up. The whole world of this subjective experience of mind and body opens up with nothing being left out. Because... To really know the touching sensations at the nostrils, right? You can't help but get to know the mind because what is knowing the touching of the air going in the nostril? The mind is. So to the degree that we sustain our interest with something as simple as the breath coming in and the breath going out, you'll, ha- you'll have to know literally the whole universe and how suffering comes to be in the mind and heart and how suffering ceases in the mind and heart. So the, this talk, this collection of teachings is really a comprehensive display of the Buddhist teachings. And the, and Joseph Goldstein does a very beautiful job with, you know, both interesting stories. The wonderful thing about Joseph is he's, he's got a very curious mind about the world, which is the, the kind of person you want to have articulate the teachings. Because those people, they look at things from many different angles. Joseph was a philosophy major at Columbia, and then uh, before he got interested in meditation practice. And he studied not just in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, but also in the Zen and Tibetan Buddhist traditions. So he's really heard the practices from the practice, the teachings of the Buddha from many different perspectives. And it really comes out in this, in these talks. Now I want to take a little time to uh, open up chapter one, where the Buddha is talking about four particular, he begins to talk about four particular qualities that are needed. And I just read them. Ardent, being ardent, being clearly aware, or you could say alert, mindful, and here, He's using mindfulness in a more technical way. And then the fourth is, um, how does he say it? Free from desires and discontent and regard from the world. 
So for the next few weeks, I'll talk about these four qualities. Today, tonight, ardency. And I really like that term, ardent. I tried to bring it out a little bit in the guided meditation tonight. And it's nice because a lot of times in Buddhist circles, we tend to think of passion or wholeheartedness, being devoted. It's like, you know, we always stereotypically think of a Buddhist practitioner as being cool, equanimous, not too, you know, not too uh, interested or uh, charged about things in life. But, but that's, you know, you can't do this practice unless you're wholehearted. You know, you, you have a real passion. Maybe passion isn't the right word, but we need a word. And so you can use the word as they gets translated here, ardency. And the nice thing about ardency, it both has this flavor of a, a real steadfastness or sticking to it, being committed. But ardency also has this quality of warmth to it, doesn't it? I don't know. We don't use that word as much anymore, but, you know, ardent has a sense of the heart is in it, really committed. I can't not do this. It's like sometimes we feel that way. Sometimes with relationships, like, I just, I can't not be with this other person. Or, you know, I can't not do this. Sometimes artists, you hear artists say this. I heard a nice interview coming back from my retreat with Carrie Miller. Some of you know her on uh, in Minnesota Public Radio. And seven years ago, she interviewed, um, I'm forgetting his doctoral, is that? That's not exactly the right pronunciation. A famous novelist does a lot of historic... What's his name? Is that it? But, uh, so she did this wonderful interview with him. And boy, I really, that's what came across in the interview is like how committed he is to his writing projects. He did something, I guess back in 2007, he had finished it just then on Sherman's March Through the South, a fictional novel. But he really draws on the history when he writes. And you just talked about his process and the commitment and uh, one of the things he said like when a project sort of comes to the fore right the next writing project comes to the fore and he's written a number of books and is well respected you know he says it comes to the point where i can't not do the project it's like there's nothing else this mind heart body is going to do so you do it that's how you know you're going to do this next project it's like you can't stop yourself from doing it now, a lot of us have more wishy-washy lives, you know, where we get sort of pushed and pulled in different ways. So I think it's nice to have, maybe, I think there are people like that who have the luxury, you know, that they're skilled enough, they found their place in the world in a way where we can take inspiration. Like, where can we find that ardency in our life? What do we care enough about? And of course, you know what the Buddha would expect or would point us to, like, can we care enough about this process of getting to know the heart so that this is the one thing that we can't not do? We may have to do a lot of other things, like feed ourselves, have a job, take care of our responsibilities, our kids, if we have kids, or partner, or whatever, parents, dogs and cats, you know our communities. So we have all these other 
responsibilities, but actually what we do is we transform all of the real, very real responsibilities in life in the service of getting to know the heart. That's actually what's going on. So when we go to work and deal with our boss, we're getting to know the heart, the mind. When we're, you know, dealing with relational stuff or relationship stuff, we're using it to get to know the mind. When we're bored out of our skull and we're watching stupid TV to fill up the space of our lives, we're using that to get to know the mind, the heart, like what's going on. Sustaining that recollectedness. Because it takes a lot of ardency. It always feels like there's something more important to do. I'm sure this was your experience tonight in, in the 33 or 34 minutes we had in the set. Like, didn't it seem like so many other things were more relevant than to sustain that present moment awareness of the body and mind? Why? Why pay attention? Why pay attention to the body? Why not think about this or worry about that or fantasize or plan something or wonder about the person next to me? Everything seems relevant, more relevant than sustaining that recollectedness. And the reason it doesn't seem important is that we have a sense that what's well, just the breath or it's just the yucky, painful sensations in my knee or my back or just the irritating sound of somebody breathing too loud or, you know, whatever. <clears throat> and we tend to be dismissive. So we need to have a different story about our practice. It's, I think, really important. You know, a lot of people, and this is one of the reasons Joseph read this, uh, wrote this book. I, I was... Uh, at IMS this summer, leading a retreat with uh, Kamala Masters and Deborah Rettner. And I had lunch with Joseph one day. He was there at the staff dining hall, and we were talking a little and about this book. And I was encouraging him to come to Minneapolis on his book tour so he could come do a few programs here. He said, well, maybe. <laughs> but he hasn't followed up. <laughs> so, we'll see. But anyway... Uh, I, he was saying about this book, you know, he wanted to reclaim the word mindfulness, which in the last ten years or more, it's really gone out there in the culture, and it's like a big deal in the world of psychology now, in the medical world, preventative health world. I mean, it's everywhere. It's in the business world now. There's a number of people in our community that are regularly teaching in corporations. I think uh, Richard's here today, and a number of other people who teach mindfulness in all kinds of settings. And as a practice of or, or a method or process of being more functional in whatever we do. And actually, it's true. Mindfulness will make you more functional at pretty much everything. Even things that maybe aren't so skillful. <laughs> you know, if you do it more mindfully, you'd be better at that unskillful thing. <laughs> but he wanted to reclaim it because the Buddha used mindfulness, it was a primary skillful means or a primary tool in the awakening process, in a process that leads to the heart's unshakable release, meaning that the heart's release of stress, release of greed, anger, delusion, release of any limitations is unconditioned, meaning the heart's release is the heart's happiness, you could say, is no longer dependent on the conditions that are unfolding in our lives. 
like how it is for us, whether we're, you know, healthy or not healthy, or whatever else we might be experiencing. So this is, we're talking about, you know, instead of a, a more ordinary kind of happiness that is arising because we've created really nice, harmonious relationships in our life, or we've found a way to solve the very real problems of being a human being, how to feed ourselves, how to be safe in the world. We're finding a release from the ordinary, uh, anxious, fearful uh, needs of the mind, of this sort of physical existence, this social existence. So the liberation the Buddha pointed to is not 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 being a human being, but being free with the limitations of being a human being. Like being free with the aging process. Being free with how relationships never quite work perfectly. I mean, there are some times we have relatively harmonious relationships and sometimes relatively not so harmonious relationships. But even when our relationships are great, they're, they're still limited. They're not perfect. Has anybody here had a perfect relationship? Or even a perfect moment in relationship? <coughs> really nice moments, no doubt. I mean, I've had really nice moments. I'm hoping most of us have had really nice moments with another human being. Or, But a perfect moment? No. There's just, in this level, on this kind of conventional relative level of our existence, it's just not perfect. There's just nothing perfect about it. Everything is limited. Even like when I'm really sitting in a comfortable way on my couch and I don't have anything to do, you know, and I've got my computer and I can do anything I want in the world through the internet, you know, it's limited. Or whatever it might be. I was on retreat in a beautiful place, but it's limited. You know, there are deer ticks there. <laughs> Let alone, you know, mice in the building and pipes that might freeze at any moment, you know. Now that I'm not there and no one else is there, we're wondering, like... You know, so there's like all these limitations. Even in really nice situations, let alone the bad. So the... Mindfulness, Joseph wrote this book because we want to keep this mindfulness placed or connected with this path, this path of liberation, this path of awakening, the unshakable release of our heart. That's actually, I think, what we're interested in, isn't it? I mean, who's not, who wouldn't be interested in the unshakable release of the heart? Only a person who doesn't, who so arrogantly believes it's not possible. I'm not saying you should believe it is possible, but you definitely shouldn't believe it isn't possible. Because that's really limiting our life to think that the best we can hope for is this ordinary human life of being born and dying, whatever that means, and the confusion that entails, and the struggle that entails. That that's all we can hope for in life. You know, every once in a while we have these powerful teachers who say, don't limit your life to that. There is a way of being free. And we kind of see that in these lives 
what, you know, people we call saints because when they become relatively or maybe, you know, theoretically, hypothetically, completely free of greed, anger, and delusion, then what we notice and what resonates about their life is how generous they are with their life, how happy they are, how light they are, not because they're healthy or because they're rich or because they're beautiful, but because the happiness or the lightness or the generosity or the kindness is unconditioned. It's not because of a particular reason. It sort of shines through more because of what's not there than because of what they have in their life, the particular conditions of their life. And it's magnetic. When we're around those people, it's magnetic. It's like... And when we experience it ourselves, little moments of that freedom that is arising for no good reason. It's like, I'm not feeling free because I'm in a really nice place around the people that I really care about. The freedom is for no good reason. That's the freedom we're interested in, the unconditioned freedom. And this really brings up a lot of ardency. So we need to have a story that at least opens the mind to this possibility of freedom because then we're willing to have some passion, some devotion to check it out, to look at it. And then when we start having actual experiences of the heart feeling light and free, even though our external or our sort of situation life hasn't changed, we're still aging, you know, I still have to go to work and with all that limitations, you know, and I still have my to-do list that isn't anywhere close to being done. But yet, we see something. We realize something in the heart or mind that gives us an intuitive sense that the freedom isn't about having an aging body or not, or having a good relationship or not, or having financial security or not. In this uh, chapter, Joseph talks about three other things that we can reflect on in life to strengthen ardency, this willingness to be steadfast and this willingness to put our whole heart into it. And uh, the first is to reflect, and I mentioned this right at the beginning of the sit, the preciousness of this life, like how much good fortune. We may not have as much good fortune as we imagine somebody else has, but we could reflect in a way to see how fortunate we are just to be able to show up, like I mentioned, to be interested in the heart, in the mind. Very few human beings have the luxury to be interested in the mind. They're just too caught in basic survival. They live in a war zone. They're being oppressed for one reason or another. In poverty, they're in a difficult situation uh, in their relationship, in divorce or in the middle of a divorce or something like that, or just overwhelmed by life, the details of life. But for some reason, you know, with all of our difficulties, we were able to get here tonight. We're able to sustain some interest in this practice, and we can reflect on that, like, and how quickly that could change. This may be the last time we get to reflect on the heart in this direct, immediate way. This sit, this next sit, or whatever. 
we don't know if there'll be another chance. It's like it's so easy to think, well, I'll have my nine-day retreat this summer, I'll have this day-long retreat, or I'll be able to sit tomorrow morning, but we don't know whether that's true. This may be our opportunity to learn about the heart, because things could change on a dime. The other thing that Joseph suggests, and this is coming out of the Buddhist tradition, these reflections, so the preciousness of human life, and this not just that we have this life, but we have an interest, like we bumped up, bumped into these teachings, and that we found in, that the mind was actually interested in them, and that we actually have the space in our life to reflect on them and to take them up and to actually do the practice. So to reflect on that. And the second reflection is to reflect on uncertainty or impermanence. So how things can change. And I mentioned that already. But we could systematically bring up how quickly things can change. It's like it's very interesting for me now in my mid-50s to reflect on all the people I know. I mean, these are close people close in my life who have gotten really, really sick or died or had serious life-changing events in their 50s. And it's like, it's more than 10. I mean, close people in my life. So, you know, there's no more for me thinking, well, you know, oh, I'm only 50. <laughs> I've got at least, you know, it's amazing what we say. Like, I've got 30 years left. But clearly that's just delusion. We don't know. I mean, that's the one certain thing. We know that we don't know. Does anybody here know? <laughs> no, we know that we don't know how it's going to unfold. And w if we reflect on that, you'll see that actually the heart becomes ardent. It becomes more and more committed to what really matters and less and less enthralled by what ultimately doesn't matter so much. Wynn and I, my wife and I, have been watching Borgen. I think it's... Anybody been watching that? <laughs> I should say, because now you're all going to find it, but I'm going to say so. Los Angeles Public Television has it. And it's a TV program in uh, made in Dan uh, Denmark. It's really good. It's just about a, a woman who became the prime minister and is no longer prime minister and... But anyway, I think you've missed all the earlier episodes and I don't think you can watch it until somebody else, some other public television station picks it up. But they put one or two episodes up a week that you can watch. So we've been watching. And it's like really wholesome TV and well done. and You know, it's good because there are subtitles. <laughs> you can be sort of feel superior. Like, <laughs> like well, if it ain't BBC... But it's like, you know, it's like I can see my attachment to watching, you know, I was on a retreat so I missed a couple of episodes and then they disappear, you know. And who knows when I'm going to be able to see those few episodes that I missed because I don't know if anybody's ever going to play this in the States again. So these things can seem important until we reflect on impermanence. And all of a sudden, as nice as it is as an experience to kind of, being into this story or reading a novel or whatever it is for you, you know, going to play bridge with your group or 
as nice as those rituals are that we have in life, as much meaning as they can deliver in life, in the great scheme of things, they're not that important. And this is the ardency that we get from reflecting on impermanence. And then the third reflection, the traditional reflection that Joseph brings up in this chapter is on karma. Remember, karma means that uh, intentional action or volitional action. So we're reflecting that what intentional actions or volitions that are here now in the mind, that is quite literally setting in motion what's going to happen next. It's actually not a mystery what's going to happen next because, like I said right at the beginning of the talk, what's more relevant isn't whether, like, just to be dramatic, whether we're going to die driving home tonight in a car accident or not. Actually, what's more relevant is the mind that's going to know that experience. That's what's relevant. And the mind that's going to know that experience is being set in motion right now by how the mind is relating the, the intention or volition in the mind right now. That is going to be predominant later because that's what's getting momentum right now. So if you're stewing in aversion right now or caught in some fear, taking it personal, like you've got some fear that's gotten triggered for whatever reason, and here, being at calm ground, instead of you know doing something else with your mind, you're just using the experience to keep generating the fear. Like, what are these people thinking about me? You know, or I'll never get this right. I'm never good at this stuff. Well, then, in that experience of dying or whatever's going to happen to you tonight, that is the mind that's going to be knowing or being in that experience, and that's actually more more relevant than what happens tonight. Whether you go home and have an ice cream sundae or have a stroke, <laughs> what's really relevant is the mind that's going to be there, knowing that experience. And this is what begins to be revealed in the process of being mindful. The mind that's knowing is more relevant than what's being known. Of course, as a living being, there's moment by moment something being known. But what's relevant is the mind that's knowing. And I know that's not, you know, I, I can say that theoretically, but I'm often, often living my life as if what's important is what happens, not the mind that's knowing what's happening. But slowly, through practice, I'm gaining some respect. And this comes about partly by reflecting on karma, the relevance of intentional action, like how the way the mind is now is what's been set in motion from the past. Like the tendencies of this mind to be defensive, where did that tendency to be defensive come from? Well, it had to be set in motion. Previous mind moments of a mind taking defensiveness personally, you know, owning the defensiveness. So now it's a big habit. It has a lot of momentum. So of course it's going to arise now. That's going to be a tendency in this mind now. So you might, in the weeks ahead, you know, the Buddha is recommending that in order to take on these ways of establishing mindfulness, you're, you're going to need these four qualities of ardency, 
clear seeing or alertness, this recollectedness of mindfulness, and the abandoning of the hindrances or the stillness of mind, the balance of mind. And I'll talk about these other three in the weeks ahead. But we can start by reflecting on ardency. Like, how can the, we get the strength of heart? That's a nice way of thinking of it. Or another teacher translates it as the long-enduring heart. You know, nothing really happens in the world without a long-enduring heart. you got to really stick to something. It's like that's what makes like just something more ordinary, like a, a really good relationship with another human being. It's having stuck to it for a long time, through the difficult times, through the good times. It's the sticking to it for a long time that makes it something of real value, right? It's true with all kinds of things, like skills. You know, I was uh, talking to somebody the other night who works with horses, and uh, he's about my age. You know, he's been doing it his whole life. He shoes horses for a living, blacksmith, and shoe horse, uh, horse shoer. Oh, there's a word. I didn't know that. Yeah. He didn't say that. Maybe he didn't want to embarrass me. <laughs> but it was just so interesting talking to him, like how much he knew about that and taking care of horses generally. He has a bunch of horses himself and lives out in the country. And, you know, just uh, just that depth of experience, you know, and it's so attractive when we, and it doesn't matter if we're interested in what that, what's attractive is the sort of depth that a human being can have. Now, we can have that depth in terms of understanding the heart itself. It would be the most relevant thing to have a depth with. Anyway, I'll leave it here. We have a few minutes before we have to end, five minutes or so. You might have some examples of ardency from your own life and practice you'd like to share with the group, or just questions about this topic. What comes to mind? Anything, any place in your life where you've experienced that? Paul? Um, I pulled a book off of the shelf in the reference library in the, in the other room. Uh, a book by Ajahn Sameo. I read just the first preface of it. It just struck me as something that I can be part of about. He says, take refuge in the changingness of things. And uh, that turns on its head my sort of, I don't want things to be the same, the things that I want. But my own self will take refuge in the fact that, of course, you're upset, and you won't always be upset and change. But uh, it's a very comforting uh, thought, and it's true. And I think he goes on to say, it's an indestructible refuge. Yeah. And these things, like Paul's mentioning with impermanence, or the changingness of everything, it's like the reason that ardency arises is because it's true. And it will always be true. And, you know, in this ambiguous world of ours, you know, where there's... Nothing but truthiness. What does 
Stephen Colbert say, Truth, truthiness? Yeah. <laughs> Which is sort of truthful, but not really, because it's just on the surface. It's like when we find something that's a real refuge, that things will change, it actually, we feel this like, I don't want to forget that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And by the way, Paul and Isaac are the ones who did this beautiful paint job on the basement floor this last week. I don't know if you know, we were closed last week, and it's beautiful, you guys. Thanks so much for doing that. Take a look at the big room where the library is downstairs, right below here, if you get a chance tonight. Other comments or sharings? Yeah, Jonathan. Uh, you mentioned that the, uh, the entire series that Joseph does, uh, he has a, a recorded series on Dharma this whole, uh, four, I think it's like 12 episodes or something. It's 46, 46 talks. Yeah. yeah. In fact, there was a community group at Common Ground that went, we went through each of the talks. So Jan and Mark Young had it at their house. And I don't know how many years it took us, but once a month we met. And so I guess we could figure out it was about three years or a little bit more. Uh, yeah, four years. Wow. Because it was... Uh, yeah, because just once a month. But anyway, yeah, we went all the way through it. And Mark Young, I'm going to get these notes. He uh, made these wonderful notes on each of these 46 talks that will get up on our website eventually uh, because people will, going through the book, they basically the book follows those 46 talks that Jonathan's pointing to. So you can go to dharmacy.org if you want to listen to any of the 46 talks that were then turned into this book. And that's another way, like instead of buying the book, you could just, if you want like a particular topic that we're covering really seems relevant to your practice, then just go to dharmacy.org, look under Joseph Goldstein, look under Satipatthana, you'll see all 46 or 7 talks in a row, just find the talk that has the title of that topic, and then listen to it. Dharma Seed, S-E-E-D, dot org. S A T T. No, I'm sorry. S A T I. Peep. Right now. <laughs> I should know this, but you know when you're on the spot. No, no. S A T I P A T T H A N A. Glad somebody does. <laughs> Anything quick before we end that somebody wants to share? It's pretty quick, and it's just kind of light. But you know, in interest of anybody can be a teacher. And you were talking about TV. Maybe other people saw this, but it just amazed me that David Letterman gave this great Buddhist teaching the other night in his monologue. He starts. He goes. He just does this thing of. You know, there's all this controversy in the world. Why is there so much controversy? I'm sick and tired of controversy. People have controversy. I just want to say to them, don't you know you're all going to die? You're all just going to be dead. So just forget about all this controversy. <laughs> oh, Dave. <laughs> yeah, Tiktanon has something very similar. He says, next time you have an argument with your partner or your good friend or whatever, just imagine the person, what they're going to look like in 300 years. And it's very hard to stay angry. (laughs) Let's just take a few seconds of silence.
take a breath together. And appreciating these this lineage of wisdom and compassion that we get to be part of. And we can aspire to do justice to the all the people in the past who have practiced and shared their fruits of their practice so that we get to receive these teachings again. So may our practice lead to real peace and freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.